This is Dr. David Proden, and I want to thank you as we begin another journey into school and community safety. If you're looking for industrial safety expert, Appalachian State University professor, Dr. Timothy Ludwig, please visit www.safety-doc.com. Again, that's Dr. Timothy Ludwig at www.safety-doc.com. Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio host, and nationally recognized safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Join us each week as we discuss the best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe. Hi, everybody. I am Dr. David Proden, and welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast. Today, I will be talking about positive recency, the Monte Carlo fallacy, and how that all ties into school safety. First, it is cold down here in the North Star studio. I'm looking up at the weather dial. We are at a brisk 58 degrees Fahrenheit. I do have my electric fireplace on in the corner in the back. Normally, I wouldn't do that because I don't want background noise. But it is a matter right now of keeping the safety dock thawed throughout this podcast. So it's a necessity. It is cold. It is winter. Wisconsin. Um, Ironically, though, we don't have the snow that... um, just always remember growing up as a kid with the big snow banks and um, our lawn is completely green. I was hoping that we'd have some snow. We do have a sledding hill in back of our house. My daughters like to go sledding. Not an option. It is just a green hill right now. So yeah, it's a green Christmas. I remember a few of these as a kid, but now it's almost becoming typical. Um, have a very specific memory I want to share. We had a friend in a snowmobile club. They did a fundraiser around this time of year, and it was in the basement of a rural church. It was a chili fundraiser, so everybody would bring in different types of chili, and they would sell tickets, and it was really nice, you know, um, but you had to drive out in in the country over gravel roads to get to this rather kind of small church that then again had this hall in the basement. Um, you know, you can maybe have 60, 70 people in there and people were coming in and out. It wasn't a real big thing, but again, a fundraiser for this church. I remember vividly going out to this church and looking out the windows of the car as a kid. You know, I was probably 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. We, we went out for many years. Um, and there would be huge snow banks. So these big V plows would come through. Um, so basically a truck with a, a city a county truck with a huge V plow on the front and just clear the roads because you'd get big snowstorms, you know, 12, 15, 20 inches. And the ditches would have these huge mounds of snow. 
And it looked like they were within 10 feet of the kind of drooping power lines. You know, back in the old days, the country power lines weren't that high and, and weren't that taut. So they kind of drooped down from pole to pole. And uh, I'm sure it was an illusion, you know, that there was more space. But they they definitely blocked everything out on either side. So as you look left or right, all you saw was snow. You couldn't see over the snow. You couldn't see the fields, homes, anything like that. Uh, but that's that doesn't happen anymore. It hasn't happened in a long time. Um, but I remember it was almost like driving through this tunnel of having having these huge snowbanks. And when you pull up to a corner, you'd have to kind of inch your car out so you could see what was, you know, coming on the other side. Um, again, just a different time, very different time. So um, you've heard me talk about, I'm not a big winter person. So growing up in Wisconsin, it's interesting because people who aren't from Wisconsin immediately seem to have questions about what's it like to live in Wisconsin. Had that happen when we did vacation to Orlando. We stopped in Paducah, Kentucky, uh, with different friends that I have that live out of state. You know, like, what's it like? What's it like? I said it's not. <laughs> right now, you know, it's about 40 degrees and the yard is green and it's just kind of this this haze in the morning and it's just like cold and damp um there isn't any kind of magic right now to this like you know wisconsin winter where you're maybe thinking of three or four feet of snow and the trees all covered in snow and all of that type of stuff and nope nope none of that um so it's I was I was messing around with the configurations on the computer and I need to do more with this because I look completely washed out in this image like it's um, <laughs> like I'm you know filming this about 10 feet from the sun I mean there's just there's there's too much light but the software program I have um, doesn't allow me to make these fine-tune adjustments and I don't know if I should upgrade it. Um, you know, the thing is, like, web cameras, too, are, are kind of on the way out for webcasting. At least that's what I've been told. Um, and people are going more with, like, camcorders and DSL cameras and stuff like that. And See, like, not a lot of people watch the show. A lot of people listen to the show, but only you loyal people who watch the show kind of know what I'm talking about right now. Um, so I am going to try to take that on to, to get some kind of adjustments here. So it does not look like I'm filming this while I'm looking directly into the sun. <laughs> so, um, it, it's just funny. I, I, I look at this and then I'm like, wow. Um, so my, my dad was visiting a longtime friend of the family who is elderly and has lived in a nursing home for the past few years. So he's, this gentleman is, is in his eighties and, uh, doesn't have really anyone who visits him. So he does have a son, um, but his, his, and his son lives pretty close by, but his son is not visiting him at least on any type of regular basis. So, um, my, my dad, when he first, you know, stopped in and, and did his visits, and this is what my dad does, which is really a, an admirable um, attribute, that, and, and he had learned that um, 
this resident wasn't having haircuts because you have to put money into an account and then you can schedule for haircuts to be, you know, um, every 30 days or whatever. Um, so my dad paid for that, you know, just as generosity paid for put so much money in the account for so many, you know, haircuts and had those scheduled out. And then he also brings um, like candy, like Tootsie Rolls and things like that for this man and just spends time with him. Um, just a, it's, I don't know if it's a time of year when you reflect at the end of the year, just on, on what, what it is um, to be a good person. That is definitely demonstration of a good person, what my dad is doing right there. Um, and all of those things, I think, go into, you know, society and, and eventually into safety and, and all of that. But I'm just just saying that that's really a pretty outstanding thing to do. And I use the gauge sometimes when I'm in, involved in activities where I might be working on a county debriefing after a critical incident. I've got my chair weird here today, too. But um, And what... I ask myself after that, you know, it's something I've volunteered to do, and it is um, psychologically consuming to do that. But I ask myself why, you know, like when I'm out at night running, I've been able to do that lately too because the roads are pretty clear. <laughs> you know, it's been in the 40s and we don't have snow. I don't have to worry about the ice a little bit at night, but I mean, for the most part, you don't. Um, would I want somebody to do this for me if I was in a situation where I would benefit from debriefing or if I was in a situation where I was in an assisted living center or or nursing home, um, how much would that mean to me to have somebody come in and, and spend time with me and and basically validate that I'm important? And it would mean a lot. So um, I have a parallel story to this that I hadn't thought about for a while just because it involves cleaning driveways of snow, something I've only had to do one time this year. Um, we had neighbors when we moved in uh, across from us in one house up. So close by, very close by. Um, just walk across the street and then one house up. They were both elderly and when we moved here, they were very independent. He was out mowing his lawn and was riding lawnmower and trimming trees, and and she was zooming around doing things. And so, um, and and she was actually writing for the local newspaper, a regular column. But then, you know, their health deteriorated, and I re remember both of them um, had hospice care. Would come to the home. You'd see the hospice care vehicle in their driveway. We could see it outside from our, our front windows, you could look outside and see it. And um, I also remember the day that each passed away because you could also um, observe that. Um, but uh, it, was, it was a remarkable time because when they started to not be able to do the things that they were always doing, um, I, just, I just stepped in. And not to put myself in a hero position because it wasn't, but um, here's what happened. So we we had some heavy snows. I had my snowblower and would clean out my driveway and noticed that their driveway hadn't been touched yet. And uh, I would go over and I would 
fire up the snowblower and clean out their driveway. And then I brought a shovel too because they had the, kind of a quirky walkway that would go up to their door. And sometimes salt and things like that because that area didn't get a lot of sunlight and I didn't want it to ice up. But um, it was just an easy thing to do because I had the snowblower. But it was like the right thing to do. It was the right thing to do. And I remember um, one time the the wife came out and it was, I was, I didn't, I was a little nervous when I did this because I didn't know if they would be upset. <laughs> I didn't like ring the doorbell and ask, Hey, can I clean out your driveway? It was just something I thought I would do. Um, and I also didn't want to, to make it feel like there was a burden on them that they had to have some reciprocity in this. Like, you know, well, we're glad you're clearing out our driveway. Thank you so much. Like here's $10 every time you do it. No, no, I don't. It's not why I'm doing it. I'm doing it because I want to do it. Um, and again, if if you know this, if you were my grandparents or my parents, or if this was me, years from now, I would want somebody to do this. Um, so I cleaned out the driveway, and, and one time the the wife comes out and she said, "This means so much to me, and here's why. I received dialysis." So you see there's a car that stops by and picks me up and takes me to the hospital. And I have, I don't know, every, I don't know the frequency of dialysis every couple of days. Um, and if the driveway is snowed in, especially at the end when the plow comes through, it leaves this big pile of snow that takes longer to get through. Um, I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to get to the vehicle or they're not going to be able to pull up, or I'm not going to be able to walk from the house to the vehicle if it's out on the road. And she said, it's a concern. I am very um, afraid when it snows and we get the bigger snows back then of maybe a foot, something like that, and and drifts and things. And and I said, uh, oh, you know, I understand. I And I will always... When I clean out my driveway, I will always make sure that your driveway is, is cleaned out unless some other neighbor has jumped in before me and has done that. But I'll, I'll do that. And I'm glad to do that. And it was, uh, she, she really appreciated that, hearing, hearing that story. Just imagining, um, you know, that your fear of the snow is that you, the vehicle's not going to be able to come in to take you to dialysis. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin, author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points 
and may God have mercy on your soul. time, I think, with people. People want to talk. That was an important part of, I worked a church um, community lunch for a little over two years and worked it on a regular basis. Like I only missed like one or two times. And the biggest thing for people was they just wanted to talk and tell you about their life, collectively their life, I mean, from little on. And just that if you could be a good listener and they would bring in pictures and they would be black and white pictures to show you things. Like this was my sister. This was the house we grew up in and things like that. But to be a listener, because I think so many times people just don't have anybody to talk to. Even when I've worked on my book, Lessons of Lower Manhattan, which is going great on pace for submission to the editor from the final editor um, very soon and and hopefully being out um, in early spring in stores on Amazon. But even as I work through that, I appreciate it being able to talk to people about the book and about some of the themes of the book. It was, I, I just cherish that. Something that is undervalued in society is the amount of time we give to somebody else just for a conversation and a conversation where at least half of it is listening <laughs> and half of it is is sharing information and, and reflecting. So um, it's warming up a little down here, folks. Let's talk about the recency effect. This is something I'm seeing right now in school safety. And I actually... I added a small section of this into the book. That's so the book is done. The, the manuscript is complete and now it's going through this this finishing process where it's like, you know, proofreading it and checking every sentence and stuff like that. But the the formative process of the book is complete. This is fine tuning of grammar stuff like that. Um so you don't want to add things to the book at this state because it throws everything out of sync if you've done that. You've already kind of made your decisions on this will be in the book and this won't. And it went through that massive process of, of going from 75,000 words down to, to 58. Or the last podcast, The Law of Subtraction. Um, that's one of the, I, I heard on, a, um, I think it was National Public Radio or something, where the use of Twitter helps people become very effective communicators uh, in having to get their message down to whatever number of characters. And that was a benefit of Twitter. Um, and I'm thinking, yeah, I mean, that, that is a whole part of the book of going almost word by word. And if there's, if there's something that doesn't contribute substantially to the book to get rid of it, because people only have so much time and the book has gotten much better, even though it's 17,000 words less, than what it was when it initially went to the publisher. So this recency effect, though, people are not willing to invest in research, longitudinal research. They'll invest in here's at the moment research. This is what is going on right now. Snapshot research, I guess is what I call it, snapshot research. But longitudinal research, like, you know, we're, we're going to look over five years at this aspect of school safety, threat reporting, um, 
and here's you know the whole and the other thing is the scientific process the scientific method of having a hypothesis and variables and understanding what you're going to measure and, and doing that with fidelity and stuff like that. And you can re somebody could reproduce that or you could reproduce that. All of that's kind of gone. Um, it is now, you know, what these these trend line things, um, those those aren't as popular anymore because people just don't have the patience to do it. They just want to know, like, right now, what do we do? This is represented in school safety bills. After Sandy Hook, there were 450 bills that came out. Talk about this in the book. Um, most across 450 across the country, most were for fortification of schools. You can do that, boom, instantly. I mean, somebody comes and, and looks at the, the school who has a camera system or can install bollards, and you know, within a couple of weeks, you can have those things there. Um, whether they do any good for safety, um, they provide aesthetic assurance, false assurance of a safe setting, um, what people want to see. But, you know, as far as like research and research on location and stuff like that, no, it's not there. So the recency effect, let's, let's say I, I talk, I, I give you 25 words. I'm like, okay, listen to the safety doc right now. I'm going to give you 25 words. And then I would ask you to recall those words you're most likely going to recall the first couple words that I said and the last few words that I said and not the words in the middle, unless there's something really outrageously bizarre that stands out. Um, but yeah, if they're, if they're typical words, it's the recency effect. More so, what you recently have been exposed to, have learned what's happened, that's what you remember. You're not remembering what happened. So it, we see this in courts too. It's, it's kind of the forgetting curve. But um, that's why school safety, the vending, the marketing of school safety, the $3 billion industry that is school safety, focuses on this recency effect that if there is a shooting, for example, that is in people's memory, that is a time then when marketers accelerate their marketing of selling products. Again, disconnect it from longitudinal research of what is out there that makes schools safer. You can find some of that, at least, from the CDC website, search under school connectedness. It's there. But again, 450 bills about school safety. There wasn't funding that came out for, let's do a five-year study, a three-year study on the youth code of silence, how that is impacted, how youth overcome the code of silence, youth with disabilities. What does the youth code of silence mean for them? Talk about that in my book also of just how we, we don't engage youth with disabilities in studies like this. Um, typically the, the vernacular, the register, the language of the study doesn't, isn't accessible to them or the paste too quickly, or, or it's it's just bizarre that we just don't include people with disabilities and school safety in in that school safety discussion. It's just not happening. But there's a foreword in my book, authored by actor 
Danny Woodburn, and he's going to get into the aspects of inclusive practices and how that translates into safety, specifically school safety relative to my book. Danny's an awesome person, by the way. Probably remember him from being Mickey on Seinfeld. Um, He did a lot of stuff as Kramer's friend as Mickey, but he is a tremendous giving individual, someone I am very honored to have as a friend. So this recency effect is also AKA, also known as the hot hand theory, the hot hand theory. Think of it as in basketball or sports or whatever. It's like, hey, this person just made three shots in a row. We're going to keep going to them because they've got the hot hand. It's the recency. Although you might look over the course of a game and maybe somebody has performed better over the course of the game um, but like right now, this is the this is the hot hand. This is the person who's doing well in the last 75 seconds. So we're just going to keep going to them. So um, I wrote, um, let's let's talk about the hot hand theory. Here's here's what I have. The corollary to this is the equally um, false notion of the hot hand theory derived from basketball in which it is thought that the last scorer is most likely to score the next points as well. The academic theme for this is positive recency or the recency effect we just talked about that people tend to predict outcomes based on the most recent events. Okay. That's another reason why I said Bench benchmarking gets to be really um, dangerous too, because you, you need to look at it this 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 kind of long scope of, of what safety looks like and how s- and safety is morphing and changing versus like this disaster that happened three weeks ago. The next disaster will be identical to it. Of course, planning for the next war based on the last one, another manifestation of positive recency, invariably delivers military catastrophe, suggesting hot hand theory is equally flawed. The Maginot Line, France. So prior to the Maginot Line, the thought was you can barricade and fortify your way to safety. You can have your boundaries. So the Maginot line was incredible, um, but the fact was war had evolved and Germany just went around it. So all of these resources went into this. So again, this is where we get caught up in safety thinking of like, well, whatever our response was to this previous event is what we should do for the next event. But we don't realize things like the internet um, are expanding you know, almost doubling at some points, um, the access, what 5G means, that pretty soon everything will be satellite-based, so you're you're not even going to have localized outages where you're not going to have phone reception, not if it's satellite-based. Um, the app-based things that are happening. So as we look at this, um, this, this whole hot hand theory just always benchmarks us to the past. Or maybe the present, but we got to be looking to the future. I talked about this in one podcast where 
I was watching, I don't know, it might have been the USS Ronald Reagan aircraft carrier. But the person doing the, the documentary, narrating it, got to the wheelhouse, I guess, and there were open spaces. So you had like your radar council and, you know, whatever, whatever your navigation. But there'd be wide open spaces. And um, the question came up of like, well, what goes here? The answer was something that will be developed in 30 years will go right there. Now, it's a little weird, too, because like whatever is developed in 30 years will probably be very small and (laughs) isn't going to need all of the space anyway. But it's the fact that we we don't plan with the future in mind and we don't plan understanding that we are within you know 25 30 35 years of singularity meaning that a lot of um things that are done through robots or artificial intelligence will be on par with some of the activities that humans do does i'm not saying that AI is replacing humans, but they, these algorithm, algorithms will get more sophisticated. We know things will become more autonomous, for example, vehicles. Um, I would say within my the lifetime of my daughters, uh, they will see a pretty regular fleet on the roads of autonomous vehicles. And probably during their lifetimes, there will be the production of the last vehicle with a steering wheel that a human could navigate um, on the roads. And I think what will drive that change is the fact that insurance companies will just say, listen, like the autonomous vehicle is so much safer (laughs) that if you are going to have a steering wheel, it's cost prohibitive for us to insure you because we know most accidents are because of human error. So I think you will have this point in third lifetime where you're not going to have a steering wheel in a vehicle. Everything will be autonomous. Now, again, I I think that's pretty awesome because you, one, it increases safety, it increases efficiency on the highways and congestion in the cities, all of these things gives people time to do other things and people with disabilities, um, people with, you know, vision disabilities, um, uh, auditory people with back fatigue, you know, back issues, having it's difficult to position in a vehicle. These will, will all be, um, adjusted by these autonomous vehicles. You'll, you'll be able to be accommodated much more easily. And, the fact, um, too, that it's, these things will be lighter, they'll be easier to, to produce. Um, it's not going to, it, it really shouldn't cost much to insure. I mean, that's everything I've been reading. Um, once, once the science is, is all there and the systems are put in place, um, these things wouldn't cost a lot to insure. Because a big part of insurance today is because you're fixing vehicles because of human air and we're creating, you know, vehicles are out of metal and heavy materials like that, where you could literally probably 3D print a vehicle or most of the parts of a vehicle in 40 years, right? So so these are all kind of cool things, but this whole recency effect, what I'm talking about is a future. The recency effect doesn't go that far. It stops you at where you are at this moment and most likely just puts you back in any planning you're doing for disasters to 
the most recent disaster. So a lot of schools are probably planning for their next or, or for a disaster based upon what happened at Parkland. Maybe some as far as back, far back as like Columbine, but but maybe Sandy Hook, Parkland, like right there. But no one's looking toward the future of what what it's going to look like. And I talk about this in the book, where the response right now is the tribe is your phone, and that you're going online. We're seeing that. Uh, Hurricane Florence it was a perfect example of how people are getting information during a crisis situation that they're going online. Joplin, Missouri, tornado 2011, online. Kind of 2011 was a tipping point. We don't see that, though. We don't see that in the way that we are preparing for safety in schools, just safety in general. It's still this hot hand theory. It's a recency effect. Well, whatever was the most recent disaster. Let's kind of take some points from that and then we'll prepare as if that happened again right now. It doesn't work that way. So this whole negative recency means like if you are flipping a coin and it turns up heads 28 times in a row that you would be almost convinced like the next time it's going to be tails because it's a 50-50 chance and it has to come up tails. Well, no, it could still come up heads another 50 times or 100 times or who knows it's all by chance so this whole thing of where people get this momentum too on this this negative recency that's where i think when a i'll talk about this too but when you don't have a school shooting for an amount of time people start to say we're overdue for a school shooting we're overdue we kind of have our shooting, then we might have one or two a couple weeks after that because it's been publicized in the media and someone who was contemplating it now is going to do it, and then it, and then it quiets. But you get this thought of because it hasn't happened, it's just a matter of time. And we always hear this on the things like, well, we haven't had a, a you know volcano eruption in Yellowstone for however hundred thousands of years but we're overdue like per if we go back in history we know we're overdue doesn't mean it's going to happen tomorrow but it's overdue so school surveys <laughs> i'm not a fan of school surveys those of you who know me know that i actually wrote an entire section in my book about seven reasons not to do school surveys related to safety feel that strongly about how surveys one don't collect the data that need to be collected because they aren't developed with the appropriate constructs and that they flat out um, place students with disabilities or English language learners on the sidelines that they're inaccessible. So, But school surveys happen after some type of sentinel event, like a school shooting that's been publicized, a school shooting that's been proximal. Um, so this whole recency effect these surveys don't happen when things, quote-unquote, are quiet and going well, all right? They happen in response to a school shooting or sentinel school violence event. So people are already saturated with this, the kids, it's been all over the media, and then what happens? A couple days later, they get a survey that the school is rushed to put together without sound constructs. Look it up, sound constructs of how you actually build a survey. If you can say, I'm going to create a survey 
and I'm going to have it done in 10 minutes about school safety. There's no way. And that's going to be a horrible, horrible, horrible survey. Even the Grinch would look at that and say, yeah, this is bad. This is bad. Now, if you're doing a survey of like, you know, what people want for the potluck or for the main, you know, entree, you know, do you want burgers or chicken breast or brats or whatever? Yeah, that's fine. And that's not life and death. But these school surveys that come out after the shootings are, are all influenced by the recency effect. Because one, they're written with the positionality of the recency effect, meaning that people are going to be asking very specific questions that are going to come more from a deficit model. How, how safe is our school on a scale of, of 1 to 10? Okay, so um, that's going to be affected by recency effect or impacted by recency effect. So whoever's taking that survey, if they took it three weeks ago, they might answer like a 7. And I don't even think that's a good question. But anyway, it's a question you're going to see. How safe is our school? 7. What does safe mean? How safe compared to what? Whatever. After a school shooting somewhere else in the country, a thousand miles away, you might put five. Have you felt that we've done more safety drills this year than we did um, in the past? Which is pretty wide open. So maybe you're asking that. And maybe you just, you, you ask that like a day after you do a safety drill. And you're probably going to have people responding, yeah because we didn't do that many in the past, or I don't remember, or I guess, because we just did one. So you can kind of lead things that way. But school surveys happen after bad things happen somewhere else. So that's why people rush to these things. And then they bring them out and present them to their school boards, and they present them to their teachers as saying, look how safe we are, and they'll reflect some of it back to the students, although students don't really get into the surveys anyway. And stuff's also ideal for marketers who can quickly do some phone calls around schools and say, um, do you feel nervous um, because about, about your school safety because of this shooting at whatever school um, two days ago? Well, you can, I mean, you can make that binary. It can be yes or no. And you could also lead people in into that question, but it's like, so people answer yes, and some a marketer could say, you know, we, we sampled area schools in your state, and 81% of them, uh, the administrators, said they were nervous of school safety. Um, well, it's like, oh my goodness. But here's what we can unsell you to help you to be more safe as a school. Just see where this stuff is going. Read Lessons of Lower Manhattan when it comes out because I I expose all of this. Like I've said, and my my the my member checks have said it's a it's a terrific book. It's a book I couldn't write unless I'm retiring, which I am. But I mean, I couldn't write this because it would be career ending. It's looking at the inside of the industry from someone who's been in the industry of education for 20 years, who's served as an expert legal witness, who's taught university courses, 700-level law courses. I can give that perspective. I can tell you exactly where to look and what's going on and then how to fix it. Like, it's pretty simple. 
It's not as complicated as you think, and it doesn't mean that you have to buy bullards, bulletproof glass, and all these other things. Some They have their place in some aspects, but there are other ways to drastically, immediately improve school safety. Let's wrap up with the Monte Carlo fallacy. All right. Also known as the gambler's fallacy. On August 18th, 1913, at the casino in Monte Carlo, Black came up a record 26 times in succession in roulette. So you have the roulette wheel, spins as the black, red, and then it usually will have the, um, I think it's green, where that is the house. It's zero and then zero, zero. And so there was a near panicky rush to bet on red beginning about the time black had come up a phenomenal 15 times in application of the maturity of the chances doctrine. So the, in the application of the maturity of chances doctrine, players doubled and tripled their stakes. This doctrine leading them to believe after Black came up the 20th time that there was not a chance in a million that it would repeat. So the 21st time, it's got to come up. It can't come up Black. Uh, I believe after Black came up 20th time. So they're like, it's got to come up red. It's got to. I'm putting everything in. It's got to be red. Came up 20 times on Black. In the end, the unusual run enriched the casino by millions of francs. How francs convert to dollars, I don't know. I don't know. So this is the Monte Carlo effect that if something is happening over and over and over again, and this time it's it's negative, it's like it just, it, it can't. This is random, right? It's It's got to come up the other way. So the problem with this, when you think about safety, is again, if you have this lapse where something hasn't happened, people then expect something to happen. They start writing about why something hasn't happened. They talk about why something hasn't happened and something then happens because you've now brought it into the con. You, you've manifested into happening. That's different though than this. It's a twist off of this because this Monte Carlo fallacy is completely probability. So there's a difference there. Spin the wheel. Spinning the wheel is is different than what I just talked about, where something hasn't happened in a while. People start talking about this. They become aware of this. Maybe start running extra safety drills, more discussions, more whatever, and then suddenly whatever. And it could just be happening by chance because it happens by chance, but they, it can also be kind of brought to the forefront and manifested. So you have a roulette wheel. The, the the chance of winning, so if you place on red or if you place on black, your odds of winning are 47.4% because you have the zero and the double zero, which are house numbers. So it's roughly 50-50, but um, there'll always be a randomness in how disasters manifest, meaning that even though... Um, you know, the last whatever shootings, like this has been the first, second step of the shooter. It doesn't mean that that's going to replicate 
in the next school shooting, that the first and second steps won't be different. And usually once you get three, four steps down the road into a school shooting, it's widely different than anything you could have predicted. Um, that's why, you know, it, it is something you have to have situational awareness and be responsive to. Let's talk more about the gambler's fallacy. The gambler's fallacy is based on a failure to understand statistical independence. That is, two events are statistically independent when the occurrence of one has no statistical effect upon the occurrence of the other. Statistical independence is connected to this notion of randomness in the following way. What makes a sequence random is that its members are statistically independent of each other. For instance, a list of random numbers is such that one cannot predict better than chance any member of the list based upon a knowledge of the other members of the list. Meaning you can't go in and just like identify the lottery numbers that will come up tomorrow. Doesn't work that way. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. So today we talked about the recency effect, meaning that people will tend to focus on the most recent event or recent information. Remember, if I said 25 words, you're going to remember a few at the beginning, probably more at the end, not as many in the middle. Recency effect. When we do school surveys, when we have actions for school safety, we are basing those upon the recency effect, not over, or not over long-term research, which could be three to five years which to me is like short-term research or maybe medium research. Longer would actually probably be five, 10 years, um, but we're just not that society anymore. And people can argue, well, it doesn't make sense to do that type of surveying when our environment is changing so rapidly. You know, like we didn't have the internet 25 years ago. We didn't have smartphones 15 years ago and all of these things that, that change. And then as we hit singularity and, and what automation might mean like to do these longitudinal studies. The problem with that is the environmental factors are changing too much. So that's why not to do them. I guess, I mean, that's an argument, but we are just, um, you know, it, <laughs> here's, here's, here it is. Okay. If I were to base my entire winter wardrobe for Wisconsin upon today's weather, all I need is a sweatshirt, and uh, a couple long sleeve uh, pullover shirts. That's all. That's all I need. I don't. I don't know if I'd even need gloves or a winter hat because it's pretty warm outside today. Now, if I were to examine twenty-five days, 
the last 10 and then the next 15. Check each one of those days out. Yeah, I would know. I need a winter jacket. Probably going to need boots. Definitely going to need gloves and a hat. It's a difference. It's a difference. a different sampling that you're taking at different times. That's what you base your best determination on, that trend. You look at trends. Schools will do this, though. They'll be very confident in doing this when they're reporting out um, school performance in academic areas, math and science. Well, we didn't perform at whatever target level for math in third grade this year, but our trend line over the last five years per the state report card, even though the test might have been different three years ago and statistically they can't match the same test that were given the last two years, forget about that. But anyway, we've been showing that we've been moving up. This year was a little bit down, but you know, just we've been moving up. We've been, we've been doing pretty well. So we got to look at the trend. Forget this year. I don't know what happened this year. I don't know what it was really last year because we get the results a year later, but I don't know. Just the way that it was. If something new we were introducing or different initiatives, schedules in the schools change, whatever. Just dismiss it. Look at the trend. They're great at doing that when it comes to academics. Not so much when it comes to safety. Not so much at all. So... I am very excited right now for Lessons of Lore Manhattan. It is the book that I have been working on the past two years. Again, it is in its final stage of having the little tweaks, kind of the wordsmithing um, before it's going to publication. Everything has been checked out and validated as far as like all of the research that's been far done. Permissions from people to have their um, quotations about different topics included in the book. There's so much that goes into this that you don't realize until you write a book. And one of those things is that when you quote somebody, I mean, pretty significantly, you know, if if you're quoting, asking for their position on something and it's you know maybe a paragraph or a couple paragraphs that they're contributing. You need to get a release from them because if what they are stating um, isn't exact, you interpret it that incorrectly. You know, like I record everything, or like I have them send me this. You know, we, we I make sure I have it word by word, um, and get it in, and then get it back and say, here's the here's like the the book one here's how it fits in and kind of here's some before and after but are you okay with this are you completely in agreement with what you wrote because if that gets out and the book does well which i hope it does and people come back and say but you wrote this person who contributed to the book and we don't like this um you know that person can take a little bit of heat because again this is an edgy book it's counter culture. I completely feel it's accurate, but some people had to put a little bit on the line to include their positions in this book, which I admire that they did that. And not everybody did. People knew straight up. Um, I can't take this career chance right now. Other people didn't agree with some of the positions I had, which is fine. Like I don't expect everybody to agree. Um, 
But that's that's very interesting in the publishing world because you know what if you're working at a university and you've you know this this comes out and someone says you've taken this position which is not something we fully endorse as the university um, and it impacts their career possibly you have to protect yourself from that I don't think that's going to happen I don't expect that the the you know book is very professionally written. Um, and you know, I've, I've I've made sure to to limit those types of things while still keeping a very edgy, engaging discourse. But yes, I mean, so but going through, I was having a discussion with uh, Danny Woodburn the other night. So the actor, you'll remember him from being um, in the the role of Mickey on Seinfeld, but. I can't do his body of work justice because he's been in hundreds of things. Um, but Danny Woodburn, also an advocate for individuals with disabilities. Um, we had, we had a, a long discussion, like 45, 50 minutes, because Danny's doing the forward for the book, which is a complete honor for me. And um, one, of, one of the discussions that you know we, we got into were the number of students with disabilities in America um, and and the fact that they are treated differently in many realms. Um, and I'm not necessarily being posing this as, as being that they are overtly and badly being treated, but they're being treated differently. Um, for example, they are um, not necessarily given the same rigor as non-disabled students. Um, there is this, this high emphasis on safety drills of perhaps keeping students with autism um, at home on those days or in the library someplace where they're not exposed to the drill. And the thought is then they are not having um, to endure the drill trauma because they're not going to be able to process it. These are assumptions, of course. So we're not going to go through and, and educate them to the drill and have them participate in the drill. We'll just kind of sideline them for the drill. And the number I used was, I said, you know, we have 10 million students with disabilities. And Danny pointed out, that's low. And I said, I know, I know it's low because it's probably, so we have 55 million students in the United States, 10 million with disabilities. And we're including... Um, you know, anxiety and, and other disability areas. Realistically, you know, we're we're probably up closer between 12, 15, 12 and 15 million. But what I needed to do in the book is I needed to go with the 10 million because I can back that with multiple data sources from like the Census Bureau and um, Department of Ed and things like that. So I can, that's, that's like the lowest denominator. So the it's better to do that than to take the higher number because someone can say, well, other studies say whatever. And I can say, yeah, but most studies say, we know this, there are 10 million. Are there more? Yeah, there are more. That gets a little fuzzy in the studies then, um, but we'll say 10 million. It's still, it's a powerful number. We need to get these students into the playing field. They're on the sidelines of safety right now. We need to get them into the playing field of understanding what school safety is, how to recognize it, and then how to report it. And if we do that, that is the number one 
most powerful, significant, okay, number one, most powerful, significant thing that we can do to increase school safety in the United States. We could do that um, in a school year, bring these students off of the sidelines where they've been put. And again, it's it's a form of passive discrimination. And, and as Danny and I talked, I said, Danny, these are, and he knows, I mean, these are, these are good people. These are parents and and teachers who who are not wanting to do harm to these students. This this isn't it's it's not intentional. It's unintentional, but it's still wrong, and it's going more and more in this way. And there's fundamental problems with this too, because we know we're going to have more students educated online. Um, so we just look at universal design for learning, universal design for safety. Of we need to adjust. Remember, we look in the future, get rid of this recency effect, look in the future. What are we, how are we reaching students who aren't going to be like actually on our campus? So it's a perfect time to start having this discussion about school safety and then also realizing we really have 10 million students or more who are more or less on the sidelines of school safety. If something happens, um, a teacher or an aide will take care of the student or um, an um Old, another student will will take care of them. They'll they'll get them in and get them out or get them into the lockdown things. But um, I'm just saying, from a reporting process, we have these these systems are inaccessible. I know this because I work with students. I teach law classes. I have them bring in their student handbooks. We go through and the handbook parts on safety test out in readability levels online free. You can put them in national reading organizations and it's usually like it comes out at a 12th grade level or higher for like maybe a middle school handbook so we work and we get it down to where it's readable and then how to educate kids and i'm actually doing um for a state a project on how to help students with disabilities understand um groomers predators sexual offenders that behavior how to identify that and then how to report that. Very difficult to do that. Now, a lot of work has been done specifically for students with disabilities and making that accessible. So, I am Dr. David Proden, the Safety Doc, wishing you a happy holiday season. Thank you so much. Please subscribe to the show on Twitter, on YouTube. It's also on Podbean. Thank you to John Grant and the 405 Media for airing the show. The John or John Grant and the 405 Media out of Los Angeles, California, airing the Safety Doc show weekly. Thank you, everyone. safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Remember to check back each week for the latest 
best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. You can find Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe.